painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. What's up, everyone? This is Jocelyn from the Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs podcast, and you're about to listen to part one of a two or three part series of pelvic floor dysfunction and hip pain. Hope you guys enjoy, and don't forget to send us a message if you have any questions. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Jocelyn? I'm doing great. Things that I'm seeing in the clinic. Oh, sorry, in the background, that's Louie. Louie quit it. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of people with problems, both pelvic floor dysfunction and then hip pain. I know that you have experience both from a clinician standpoint, but also your own experience with hip issues and hip surgery. So that's where I want to kick this podcast season off with. What do you think about that? So uh, I would love to talk about that. I think Louie wants to talk about it too. For those of you that don't know who are listening, Louie is Jocelyn's adorable dog. So that's what, if you hear any squeaking in the background, that's what you're listening to. (laughs) Yeah, Jocelyn. So when I was in my last year of PT school, I ended up being diagnosed with an anterior and posterior labral tear. So that's just a labral tear in the front and the back of my hip. That was a result of a congenital hip problem common in twins fun fact i'm a twin Um, my twin brother did not have the congenital defect so lucky me and then i danced my whole life so taking a hip that had too much motion and then doing an activity that puts you in extreme ranges of motion while perhaps helping me to be a better dancer was not optimal for hip function so i ended up going or having a periacetabular osteotomy it's a mouthful so we call it a pao for short And then I had labral repair and a femoral plasty because I had extra bone growth on the femur or the long bone in my leg. And so they shaved that off. So from a patient perspective, um, challenging surgery to come back from, had some complications, but really just stuck it out in physical therapy. And I was very lucky. Shout out to Lynette Kusummers at WashU, who was my physical therapist. Um, And going through physical therapy and being patient with it and doing all the right things really got me to a great place now. And so that really sparked my interest in hips. And now with my dissertation, I'm hoping to look at 
the relationship between the hip and the pelvic floor. So I know you were saying that you're seeing a lot of people with hip pain in the clinic, and I also see a lot of women with hip pain that also have concurrent pelvic floor dysfunction. So are you finding that the women that you're seeing also have pelvic floor dysfunction? Can I ask you a question first? Sure. Kind of a personal question. So if you don't want to answer, you don't have to. Oh, man. Put me on the spot, why don't you? Did you have any pelvic floor dysfunction? And we didn't really dive into your journey pre-surgery. So if you want to talk about that at all, like, did you have, what were your symptoms before you even considered surgery? Did you have PT and did you have pelvic floor dysfunction? How did, how did your symptoms present? So I don't mind answering that at all. I did not have pelvic floor dysfunction before or after surgery, but what I did have that was very disconcerting to me that nobody talked about is I had crazy vulvar swelling afterwards for about three weeks. And so they talk about swelling in the leg, but when one side of your vulva swells up to about four times the size of the other one, it's a little bit scary. So, uh, I actually ended up texting one of my clinical instructors who does women's health and was like, hey, is this normal? What's going on? Is something wrong with me? But just using some compression was very helpful, and I was lucky on that front. Symptoms before surgery. So I ended up, well, it started with groin pain. I wouldn't consider myself an athlete, but I would consider myself a very active individual. And so it started off as burning groin pain only with exercise towards the end of a workout session. And then it just slowly progressed over time to I would feel that burning with just everyday activities. So walking in the grocery store, walking to class. But if I slept or sat, it wasn't that bothersome. Then over time, it slowly progressed to it just I felt burning in my groin all the time. It woke me up at night. I did try to go to physical therapy because we do know that first-line conservative intervention for hip pathology is to do physical therapy, but I was in so much pain that even just doing a glute set, so for our listeners that aren't physical therapists, that's just squeezing your butt cheeks together like you're trying to pinch a penny, couldn't even do that. That just caused excruciating pain. So at that point, that's when I ended up going to see the orthopedic doctor because I couldn't live my life like that. And so I, for me, surgery was the right option. I think for some of the people we see that surgeries, um, we're not medical doctors. We can't say that you should or shouldn't get surgery. But I think there's a lot of people where you don't need surgery to fix a hip problem. Right. And uh, Jocelyn, I don't know about you, but I feel like acetabular labral tears or labral tears, sometimes the term FAI or femoral acetabular impingement is thrown around. And I really think that we're just getting, or not we, physicians are getting better at diagnosing them because imaging is getting better. But I was looking up some studies on this. Now, the study that I found was only done on 101 people, so keep that in mind. But it was done in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was published in 2017. And it talked about the prevalence of acetabular labral tears in asymptomatic young athletes. So these aren't the people that have symptomatic groin pain with a labral tear. These are people that don't have any symptoms. And they found in the study, um, these are, this was on kids that were 15 to 19, both girls and boys, that under the age of 16, 56% of the 101 people had a known labral tear that was found on imaging. And then once they turned 16, 
89%, so almost 90% of the people in the study had a labral tear. Wow. However, the important thing to remember is they were completely asymptomatic. So I think sometimes when you hear this, oh, you have a labral tear, well, just because you have a labral tear doesn't mean that you have symptoms. And just because you have symptoms doesn't mean you have a labral tear. Right. So what I have a problem with is when people get surgery before ever being going to rehab and they don't know how to control their joint before surgery and then they're painful and then they're swelling and they their neuromuscular system is inhibited or shut down because of the pain response so then trying to teach them how to control their joint is so much harder absolutely i agree 100 percent. same thing with rotator cuff tears like unless um, um i get so frustrated with the poor uh execution of care if you will of people just jumping right to surgery before rehab understanding that rehab may not resolve the issue i'm not saying that but at least it's setting them up for more success after surgery i agree completely and i think one of the things that we were talking about before we got on the call is that everybody loves this clamshell exercise so clamshells are laying on your side with your knees bent and you lift the top leg up towards the ceiling and I'm not knocking clamshells. For some people, they're a fantastic exercise, but that starts to engage a muscle called your gluteus medius, which is one of the more meatier muscles that sits closer to the surface. Doesn't have a lot of control over the joint itself. So you actually have a group, which I'm sure you know, but for our listeners, um, a group of muscles called your deep hip rotators. And it's comprised of six different muscles. Five of the six are primary rotators, so it's their main job, and then you have an additional one that's a secondary rotator, so that's not its primary job, but it can help to do that. And these muscles are tiny little muscles. So they're really not designed to generate a lot of strength. You're never gonna do the equivalent of like a 100 pound barbell curl like you would for your bicep, although not. I don't know that people are really out there doing that either. But these muscles have to be able to control the joint, or rather they, have the best mechanical advantage to control the joint. But in a lot of the women that I see, if they've seen somebody else, these muscles typically are not worked on at all. Have you found that to be the case in your experience as well? When you say worked on, what do you mean by that? So when I go through with people about different exercises that they've done in therapy before or exercises they're doing at the gym, None of the exercises focus specifically on hip rotation. Oh, yeah. But yeah, for the most part. And if they are, they're so, their mechanics are so bad that there's no way that they're using them. And it's because in order to use these muscles, you have to have a stable base of support. And that's where the pelvic floor, the transverse abdominis come in. And a lot of people don't have that control. I agree. And so the other thing that kind of links it in to the pelvic floor, and this is really where I'm wanting to look my look at in research, is that your obturator internus, it's my favorite muscle in the whole body. I get super excited about it. 
So everybody should remember that name, the abtrator internus. Very commonly misdiagnosed people are say they have piriformis syndrome. It's really yeah. not. Most people, it's not your, their piriformis. It's actually their abtrator internus. But this muscle is such a cool muscle because not only does it do external rotation of the hip, but it also helps to support the main pelvic floor muscle or group of muscles called your levator ani. And so if you have hip pain or hip dysfunction, that can beget pelvic floor dysfunction. But I've also seen the opposite, that some women start with pelvic pain or urinary incontinence and start to develop hip pain with, let's say, if they're runners or they're athletes, or maybe they're not, maybe they're just living their life. And I really believe that it's the function of the abtrator and how it affects the rest of the system as to why we see these things occurring at the same time. Yeah. I just, that, that was awesome, Jenny. And I want to mention how great I love that you said that you wouldn't, you wouldn't train these muscles using masses, na massive amounts of resistance. So when people are loading a sideline hip rotation, a, an advanced clamshell with bands, I'm like, what are you doing? You don't need to do that. <laughs> I agree. I laugh because I agree. I can squat over my body weight. I can deadlift almost twice my body weight, but I cannot do a, a hip rotator dominant clamshell with resistance and not compensate. Can you imagine trying to do that with twice your body weight? How ridiculous would that be? Yeah. So I think we need to get this message out to therapists because do they actually know what they're training when they're doing that? Not they're working the glutes, maybe that's one thing, but maybe let's, how, my next thing that I wanna talk about is, okay, when the obturator internus is weak, then what happens to the pelvic floor? Or vice versa? So, that's an excellent question, and you have two different scenarios. So the muscle is either weak and underactive, or it can actually be weak and overactive, or it can be strong and overactive. So let's take the scenario of a weak muscle first. So if the muscle's weak, then it's not doing its primary job as a hip stabilizer. Well, that pelvic floor is so cool and can do so many things that I have found clinically, and this isn't necessarily supported with a ton of research, that the levator ani or the pelvic floor muscles will start to become overactive because one of the jobs they can do is to help support the pelvis. So they don't directly support the hip, but they do support the pelvis. And because they're constantly turned on, they start to fatigue. And so that's when some women will start to develop urinary incontinence. And then saying, oh, we'll just go do kegels is exactly the wrong thing to do. You would never ask somebody whose muscle is constantly turned on and overactive to then do repetitive strengthening of that muscle. So in that situation, I find that working on the hip rotator strength in itself can sometimes help that pelvic floor to turn off because we're kind of bringing that muscle that's out to lunch back to the table so that the pelvic floor can return to its normal function and not doing the function of itself and the hip rotator. Now, when in the, the reverse situation, when the obturator is overactive, it shares a connection to that pelvic floor 
via a band of connective tissue called the Arcus tendinus levator ani, or we call it the ATLA for short. Atla. (laughs) The Atla. Gotta love the Atla. Oh, love it now. (laughs) Hated it while I was in PT school. (laughs) So when that muscle gets tight, or when that muscle becomes overactive, um, I think from our WashU days, we were hammered in that tight is actually not a physiologic principle. Doesn't mean anything. A muscle can be short. A muscle can be stiff, but tightness doesn't really mean anything. So if the muscle is stiff and overactive, or if it's come to a point where it's actually short, maybe because of some anatomical um, anomaly or just how our bodies are positioned, it pulls tension through the atla, which then pulls tension through that pelvic floor. So in that circumstance, we also end up with an overactive pelvic floor but we end up with an overactive pelvic floor for a very different reason than we do in the scenario that we just talked about where that obturator is actually weak. So how would someone know how to identify this? Let's say they're out in the middle of, they're in a location where they don't have access to a pelvic floor physical therapist and they wanna be active and they're, the only time they can see that PT that's two hours away is three months down the road. How can we give them, like suggest that they try figuring their body out? So I think the first thing to think about is what kind of symptoms are they having? And have they been assessed by a physician? Have they been assessed by a physical therapist? Have they been assessed by a chiropractor, by an Arasti clinician? There's so many different people out there. But I think if you have pain, let's say you work out at a gym, there are a lot of amazing strength coaches and um, personal trainers out there. If you can work on some movement modification and the pain goes away, then I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not sure that everyone would agree with me, but I really do believe that um, some of the fitness coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, other fitness professionals, sometimes they do a much better job than we do as physical therapists with appropriate training and different movement strategies and loading. So I think that's the easiest answer. I think the next thing is, is if you aren't working with somebody and you modify what you're doing and it doesn't get better, then it is important to get assessed. And it doesn't have to be by a pelvic health or a women's health physical therapist, but by somebody that you trust that's really gonna take a look at you as a full person. Um, Beyond that, I think you're really relying on the skills of the person that is assessing you. But I always tell people, or I tell my patients when I work with them that Physical therapy is typically not a quick fix, but we should see some noticeable change in symptoms, whether it's pain or function, or maybe you're leaking less urine every time you leak, or you're not leaking as many times in a day, or maybe you have pain with sex, but it's instead of a five out of 10, it's a three out of 10, which I hate the numeric rating scale like that. So maybe that was a poor example to give. But I say within three to four sessions, you should have some positive lasting change in your symptoms. And if you're not noticing anything that's lasting, you need to let me know because that means we need to do something different. So if you're working with somebody that you're on visit 12 and nothing's changed, I would highly encourage you to seek um, the assistance of 
somebody else. That's awesome advice. I really yeah. like how I liked how you pointed out how strength coaches and fitness pros often do a better job than we do as PTs. And so gr- thankful for you guys out there listening. Keep up the good work. Yes, um, we need you. We need you to teach us. Yeah. So what I, I, what I wanted to ask you next, and what, oh man, there were so many questions that I wanted to ask. And I think that, so we're going to cap this episode off at about, about 25 minutes, but there's so much great info that Jenny and I want to talk about. So I think we should do like a part two, maybe even a part three. But the next thing I wanted to get into then was how, how, what we typically see in the clinic beyond what Jenny was talking about in her own personal story and what we typically do about it. So I'll start off because I reach out to Jenny pretty regularly on her advice on how to approach stuff. And there's a a couple different camps of presentations that I see. So I see people that have hip pain and it's more on the groin pain side and they describe it as so deep they can't put their hand on it or they can't stretch it out. And that it just is this like relentless, like they can work through it, but it's not something that is going to, that they forget about. And so I see the more of the nerve type pain that is either referring from a branch of the obturator nerve proximally and like the, as it goes through the obturator canal, Sometimes I see it as a referral around a scar, like an abdominal scar, if that's a hysterectomy that was kind of botched, or a C-section scar, and that could be like the lateral hip, and that, so those are the nerve pain camps. And then I have the camps that are more of the labral, the labral tear and and or the the athlete, the lifter. So they get the pain during deadlifting. And sometimes I get, I can see some sacroiliac joint impairments as well. But the the approaches that I take are totally different with those. Now, do you see similar presentations? And if not, what do you see? Yeah, I think I do see similar presentations. And I think in the hip, we are quick to assume intraarticular hip pathology uh-huh. or maybe some kind of referral from the low back. Um, if you, I always like to talk about, and I know so many people do, that song when you're little, like the ankle bone's connected to the foot bone. Everything's connected. So usually if one place isn't moving well, our bodies are lazy. We do what's easy, not necessarily what's right, and you're still gonna move. So if you can't move in one place, you're gonna move excessively in another place. And then you kind of get into the two thoughts of, okay, are you having pain because the one place is too stiff? Or are you having pain because one place is moving too much? I find in women, it tends to be the area that's moving too much that's causing the problem. So. I tend not to focus a ton on stretching. 
I work more on activating the muscles and strengthening the muscles that um, are um, underworked and not not moving as much or not not turning on. And as those muscles start to function better, the area that seems like it's really tight, or you get that complaint of, oh, it's so tight, but I feel like I can't stretch it out. And when I worked with dancers, um, when I was up at residency at University of Pittsburgh, I worked with Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. And when I was down in Texas, I worked with the Texas Christian University Dance Program. So many dancers come in and they're like, oh, my hip flexors are so tight, but I can't stretch them out, or my hamstrings are so tight. And then, you know, they can put their leg behind their head. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, you don't truly have muscle shortness, but our bodies don't necessarily have a cue, or at least I've kind of um, seen in clinical practice to say this feels unstable. So the body just gives the signal of tightness. And so then what do we do? We do tons and tons and tons of stretching, which might temporarily in the moment feel good, but then long-term isn't fixing the problem. So um, back to your original question, yes, I think I see people in exactly the same two camps. Um, also thinking about some of the other nerves that go in the area besides the obturator as well, but that tends to be oh, more pregnant yeah. than in somebody that's never had a child or somebody that's not pregnant, which is a topic for a completely different podcast. Yeah. I wanted, I was about to bring up some other presentations. I'm like, wait, this could go down a really deep rabbit hole. <laughs> Let me just hold off for a moment. So Jocelyn, we're kind of getting close to the end of our 25 minutes here. So I know I'm going to put up a couple videos on my Instagram this week of some of the common exercises that I like to have people do as just initial activation of these deep muscles and then working on some control of the movement. Then also a couple different self-mobilizations I will sometimes have my patients do to help with a little bit of pain relief. Do you think you'd be willing to put up a couple of your favorite exercises as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I will share yours as well, either on my story or on my feed. All right. Well, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but uh, we know you guys have lives and you need to go live them. And so we're going to cut it off here for today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll talk to you all next time. Thank you guys. See ya.